You're listening to Beck and Calling, featuring Whitworth University President Beck A. Taylor. In each episode, Beck interviews influential thinkers, authors, artists, and other leaders who are living out their callings in life and making the world a better place. Well, I'm excited to welcome the Reverend David Bailey to the podcast today. Reverend Bailey believes that the church should and can lead by example in diversity and reconciliation. He's the founder of Arabon, a ministry that equips churches and nonprofits with the tools and resources to shepherd their communities from aspirational values regarding diversity along racial and ethnic and class divisions toward an embodied practice of those same commitments. David is the author of Arabon, Learning Reconciliation Through Community and Worship Music, and the producer of the Urban Doxology Project. Urban Doxology is a ministry of Arabon that engages in culture making for reconciliation through worship formation. They create worship experiences and resources to equip Christian communities with the spiritual formation needed to faithfully practice reconciliation. David Bailey was named by Christianity Today in 2016 as one of the 20 most creative Christians we know. That's a pretty impressive group. David is on Whitworth's campus today by invitation from our Office of Church Engagement and by David's good friend and Whitworth Professor of Church Music, Dr. Ben Brody. I met David uh, about this time last year when we found each other at the Murdoch Trust Leadership Conference in Vancouver, Washington, and I'm so glad that he's finally made it to Whitworth. Last night on campus, our community watched the film titled 11 a.m. on Sunday, Hope for America's Most Segregated Hour, for which David served as producer. It's an incredible film that tells the story of the Urban Doxology Project and its efforts to shape worship leaders into agents of reconciliation. David and his wife, Joy, live in Richmond, Virginia. Welcome to Whitworth, David. We're super happy to have you here. Is this your first time to Spokane? First time to Spokane, yeah. I, uh, thanks for having me, really glad to be here. It's been lovely. Yeah, thank you. How often do you travel and what kind of venues are you being asked to speak in these days? Yeah, we travel a lot. My wife and I don't have any children, so it gives us a lot more flexibility uh, in this call. And so we do about 100,000 miles a year, wow. just of flights and places. Maybe. So you get upgrades a lot, I hope? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Particularly from the West Coast, going back to the East Coast, yeah. I tend to get like a first class thing. It's pretty great. And uh, so it's been good, yeah. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Mm -hmm. Still live there. Been mm -hmm. there my whole life. Um, I spent two weeks at recording school in Chillicothe, Ohio. Okay. And um, then I, uh, but I guess now some people probably wonder, do I still live in Richmond or not? <laughs> <laughs> as much as I travel. But it gets, you know, it's cool. The, what I learned from 18 to 25, I was trying to leave Richmond. Mm -hmm. And what I've, uh, God said, plant where you bloom where you planted. And it's literally what I learned in Richmond is taking me around the world. Yeah. Well, you continue to have an important role there in Richmond, yeah. I know, particularly in the last several years as the community's dealt yeah. with, with things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's been a really, I mean, I think one of the blessed things about it is, is like my dad was really involved in a lot of mm -hmm. urban-suburban partnerships. Um, it was a, a group of churches that he would kind of help bring together, go to Promise Keepers. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of got the stuff through birthright. Yeah. I mean, it's just been a... A great, great journey, and some of that capital is being used to kind of help the city now. Yeah, wonderful. Well, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once famously said that 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour in Christian America. He said that in 1963. Have things changed in America since then? 
it's really fascinating. I mean, I think um, I think what has changed is the motivation. Um, people are not segregated. Most people are not segregated today because they hate the other person. Mm. I think that has changed. Uh, I think why that has changed is because laws create culture. Um, and so there were a lot of laws that were created that, that created the attitudes of, um, of, uh, of race historically. But then also you got to think of why were the laws put in place in the first place. The laws were put in place not for personal reasons against a people group. It was for economic reasons. Hmm. So race was created. Race was created for economic reasons. Mm -hmm. And so what hasn't changed is the economic realities of these laws. Mm. That even though it's not socially acceptable to be overtly racist, the laws that were put in place that said, like, hey, these people can't live here, can't live there, that became illegal in 1968. That those laws didn't get enforced until the mid 70s, mm. and so what this means is that there's certain we're still people living with the repercussions. Yeah, of those I things. mean, that those laws were hundreds of years long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This has changed 50 years, and then our our church planning patterns over the last 30, 40 years has been based off of this. Like the church is off the expression of the brokenness that's in society, mm. not a countercultural witness to that. Mm. And so a lot where, we, where we've kind of, the spirit has led us, and I'll do this in quotation marks, to plant churches tend to be in zip codes where we can kind of guarantee a certain kind of salary, a certain kind of budget, yeah. and to increase success. And where we don't tend to plant churches are in poor economic spaces, and there's a, except for the, 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 the role of uh, people move to cities now, so you're starting to get a little bit more gentrification, the church is being a part of that, versus actually like planting in poor areas and say, hey, we need to be a, a, a embodied Christian witness mm -hmm. all over the place and not just the place that makes them all successful is the same place that make my church successful. How has, how has consumerism kind of played into those patterns? So you've mentioned some economic forces, economic sustainability. If I'm planning a new church, I need to do it in a way that can sustain a full-time pastor yeah. and staff. And, yeah capital needs, but there's also an element of marketing and consumerism yeah. as well. We tend to go to into spaces where we feel more comfortable, right? Yeah, and, and, and so kind of the church planning methodology that's used over the last 40 years has been the homogenous unit principle. And this is just a neutral human experience. You and I can't wake up every day and think about how do we drive a car or how we're gonna eat. We, we need to just, at some point somebody said, hey, we're gonna do forks and knives in America and that's how we were taught to, to eat and, and, and we just pick up and that's what we do. Um, that's kind of a homogenous unit principle. Uh, we're gonna drive on the right side of the road, we're not gonna pick which side of the road that we're gonna drive on. Those things are, are, are neutral, but then those things can have positive and negative effects. And so when you plant the church based off the homogenous unit principle of the demographic that works really great for like the Zales or Jared's jewelry or or Chick-fil-A, then that says like, hey, we need to get a young family, 80,000 or so, X amount of thousand dollars a year, um, and we need to make sure that our preaching uh, fits within this particular demographic, that our worship music fits in this particular demographic, and our children's ministry, and these are all kind of consumer-related mm -hmm. consumption pieces, and this helps to reinforce the, the segregation that King talked about where the motivation changed, but the reality is still the same. And so you end up having, having churches across town that have a different demographic. And it's, it really, 
one of the things that I'm advocating for is really more partnerships across lines, across differences, um, across like when you, like maybe, you know, God calls you, if, if God calls you to be in the zip code that's wealthier, then can God also call you to be more, instead of building that next building or get those nicer seats or getting those whatever the case may be, because mm-hmm. you just have a partnership in, in that other zip code and, and, and you say like, hey, part of our spiritual formation is going to be in true partnership and blessing both relationally and even economically with the folks in the different zip code. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you talked about kind of shaping our uh, worship, our preaching, our music, other elements, uh, liturgical elements in ways that feed into that kind of desire to sustain something, yeah. to attract people. Your urban doxology project is an attempt to get at one very critical element of worship, and that is music. Yeah. Say more about the project. You're a, you're a musician, yeah, and so you clearly saw the power of music. But say more about the Urban Doxology project and why you think worship music is a entry point into creating uh, spaces of reconciliation. Yeah, I mean, so a little bit of this is that I mean, I I hardly call myself a musician anymore. I I uh, stopped performing in 2015. I do have a degree in music. And I worked a, a long time as a producer. And basically, when you're a music producer, you're a cultural anthropologist. And what I've discovered, like, in order to work, and if you're, like, playing a gig at the country club, and then you're, like, playing the Black Pentecostal Church, and then you might be playing the Presbyterian Church, what makes a person dance at the country club is different than what makes the Black Pentecostal Church dance and what makes the Presbyterian sway. It's all cultural anthropology. Yeah, we don't dance. We just sway a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so... You need to know how to connect with those different audiences and, and understand what, how things work in that particular context. Well, I realized that a lot of pastors or nonprofit leaders or people organization, they say, hey, I'm just going to preach the word. I'm just going to do the mission. I don't need to think about all this cultural stuff. And you're not as effective because, like, McDonald's or Coca-Cola wouldn't do, hey, I'm just going to be about selling burgers. I'm going to be about selling Coke. Like, they know how to sell Coke in some of the most remote villages in the, in the world. Why? Because they understand why anthropology and why culture matters. And so they will, what makes you be able to sell in China is different than what you sell in America, sell in Brazil, that sells in Nigeria. And so I realized that a lot of people in ministry don't think that same way. And I realized that was a very natural thing for me as a producer. And so I started to think through in our church, you know what? we need to be a little more culturally intelligent in how we engage. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, our theology is shaped by our culture also. Like we can't, we ask questions about who God is based off of circumstances and context in which we're in. Um, and so we, we, we get different, we get, I, I believe in big T truth, but we see different parts of it based off of what perspective that we're in. And a lot of times we feel like we just, we're just totally objective and, it's, and we're not. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to always be a male. I'm going to always have a, a black African-American experience. And I'm going to see the world and the scriptures through that lens. Well, it's helpful to look at for, with other different people and different perspectives. Yeah. So long story short, when we were in this church, I realized that we had a lot of, like, the, the kind of music that's produced out of the, the um, kind of Christian music industry. That is more vertical type mm-hmm. of understanding. Mm-hmm. And if you just read the lyrics, it's Jesus Christ died for your sins and everything's okay with the world. Mm. 
But we were dealing with like sometimes some murders, um, maybe some like pregnancies, maybe some some young people that we mentor go to jail, and we just dealing with a lot of heartbreak. We were also dealing with just generations of systemic racism that was affecting that we were like living. Like our, our school sucks. Like I mean, like our, our like you could go through K through twelve. We had a valedictorian that she was a valedictorian in our church, and she, when she went to the public university at JMU, she couldn't. She couldn't um, hack it. Mm -hmm. Like she just, the, mm -hmm. just the basic, her um, her valedictorian GPA didn't was probably about a D to C mm -hmm. grade level at JM, JMU. Mm -hmm. So our worship music that we typically hear in some churches isn't responding to it's, those yeah lived realities. Lived, and it was just heartbreaking. And we're singing Jesus paid it all. It's just amazing. Great. I mean, it just it was so disconnected. Yeah. And so I realized that in our congregation we needed worship language to, to, to speak to the things that were going on in our society that, that, that was just like really hard to kind of be able to see where God is in that. And it wasn't just the music and the lyrics or just the, the expression of style. Mm -hmm. It was also our liturgies and our flow and, and how do we rely on the Holy Spirit? How do we cry mm -hmm. to God for God's kingdom to come? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. how, what did Advent mean mm -hmm. in a like a liturgical calendar like within an urban context? And that just became a really great gift um, to our congregation. And that's that's a little robust nature of yeah. kind of how we got into this. Well, as I said, and as you've mentioned, uh, you built a career before your current work in music as a producer, as a performer, as a writer. Um, but you could have potentially picked other elements of worship to focus on. You could have picked on how you could have picked uh, how to become a more inclusive. Uh, exegetical preacher. You yeah. could have picked uh, how do we pray more, pray, pray more inclusively. Yeah. How do we create programs for children that yeah. respond to these things? Beyond your own personal experience as a musician, yeah. what is it about music yeah, yeah. that creates this fertile opportunity for us? Is there something unique about music itself? Yeah, and one of the things that I say oftentimes is people's theology is not sung what they passively listen to or, uh, in a sermon. It's actually shaped by what they sing. Um, people's understanding of God is based off of songs. It is well with my soul. How great thou art. I mean, these just different spaces is, is more than any kind of amazing grace. People's theology, say, what's your theology about grace? Most likely it's going to have you something tied with the song Amazing Grace or any song that they've heard about a grace than it is about any sermon they heard about grace. Mm. And so I realized that, like, you know, you got to create culture. You have to create these cultural artifacts. And, and music is one of those. It's, it's theology in some form. Mm -hmm. And so helping your worship leaders see themselves as theologians is really, really important because uh, Chris Tomlin has shaped more theology than John Stott, uh, um, James Cones, or Thomas Merton. Yeah, yeah. Um, we started out our talk by recognizing the problem of segregation in churches, but you said something last night uh, when we had a little Q&A opportunity after the movie that I thought was intriguing. I'd like for you to reflect on a little bit more. You mentioned last night that your aim in your ministry is not first and foremost to make churches more diverse. You said that it is rather to equip them for reconciliation. Yeah. What's what's the difference? <coughs> oh, hopefully they edit all of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, every community may or may not be a diverse community. There's a lot of different reasons. Like there's a reason why the Northwest 
is not as diverse, has as many minority as the South. And you, you, we just aren't in control, like we inherited that. <clears throat> so every community may not be a diverse community, but every Christian community ought to be a reconciling community. Um, you could have homogeneity economically, wealthy, poor, middle class. It could be uh, homogeneity because of ethnicity or race. Um, but the question if you're Christian is, we know that the world is broken and there needs to be some healing and reconciliation in the world. Uh, we also know that Christ is reconciling all things. So the question for us is, is like, what is the area of brokenness in our community and what is Jesus inviting us into to be a reconciling community? What are the gifts that God has given us that can help bring that mm -hmm. to be a part of what's going on? And if we, if we make diversity the goal, you actually can do certain things to make a diverse space. So for example, the NFL is a diverse space. It's not a reconciling space by any means. And so, you know, your church, potentially there are multicultural churches that, that aren't on the surface level during the most segregated hour, but when you actually look at where people, they aren't necessarily acting together as a spiritual family. They go to their own separate spaces and everybody kind of is in their own silos. Or they aren't really, they might be celebrating the diversity, but not actually doing the work of reconciliation, engaging in the brokenness that's going on in mm. there. Hmm. So, th so these are just like it's a little bit on a deeper level and really a, a level where it requires the Holy Spirit to kind of lead and guide you into kind of seeing what's true in Scripture and what ought to be and what God is calling us into and then open our eyes to see where our re reality is and, and how may the Holy Spirit lead us to, to make a difference to partner with Christ in that work. I appreciate that distinction. Do you think that diversity is a natural byproduct of that reconciliation work? Yeah, you hope that it, it, it becomes that. I actually think if you pursue reconciliation, I think a fruit can be diversity. If you produce, if you produce diversity, I mean, say if the goal is diversity, reconciliation may or may not be a fruit. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, I think pursuing, like I would rather, because even if your church and your community never becomes diverse, but if you're pursuing being a reconciling community, there's going to be a lot of testimonies of God doing things that you could never imagine. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the thing that really trying to, our ministry is trying to encourage people to go after. In Christian communities, the word diversity can raise so many red flags. It's a loaded term. Sometimes Christian communities don't always understand what we mean when we talk about diversity. I like your focus on reconciliation because reconciliation is a more theologically understood term, I yeah. think, uh, among Christians. We know that God in his creative wisdom created a diverse world for yeah. us to enjoy. But reconciliation is a concept that I think faithful believers understand and can start with. And so yeah. I appreciate that distinction. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you went, you said we know. Um, actually, everybody doesn't necessarily know. We look at, oftentimes we look at Genesis 1, as a scientific mm. treatise, which that's not what it was created for. It was the story of God, and God's first revelation was not to be a judge, not to be a savior. It wasn't to be um, um, this, this, you know, um, spirit or whatever. It was to be a artist, a creative being that created a world diverse, good, and beautiful. And then the first commandment or commissioning that God did wasn't to be holy. It wasn't to do and don't do. It was actually to, to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. 
engage in my kind of creativity, what God was saying, mm -hmm. and that's the first mandate to be human. And there's a lot of diversity within that space and, and a lot of cultural creation that was there. Mm -hmm. So to be human is to be, a, and to reflect the image of God is to be a culture creator. And there's a lot of diversity within that space. And this is before the fall. And I think that's a really important narrative. So many of us Christians have, uh, our Bible starts at Genesis 3, when it's about sin, versus with Genesis 1, where it's about beauty, creativity, and diversity. And I think even when we're looking at the reconciliation, the brokenness that happened in Genesis 3, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, like, hey, no, let's redemptively be some of the most creative, beautiful, diverse human beings as possible because that's how it ought to be. And that's where it's going to go when a new heavens and a new earth happens. And it's going to be the healing of the nations. It's going to be the, the kings of this world are going to take their cultural artifacts and give that to the king of kings and lord of lords. And somehow that's going to all be redemptive. And so all this stuff matters. And this is, this is what the Christian narrative is about. This is what we're trying to bring reconciliation into to ultimately move towards restoration in the, in the eschaton when all things come together in a whole beautiful way. Well, you've just articulated a very hopeful vision. Um, the work that you do is difficult work. Oh, yeah. It's hard work. Um, you were very transparent with our students last night that yeah. uh, you have days and weeks and months, I know, of setback and disappointment. Um, but maybe on a more personal level, David, what is it that gives you hope ultimately? What is that wellspring of hope for you personally, professionally? It's a good question. Um, man, it's, that's a good question. I mean, there's a few things I would say. There's a couple of practices that I do. Um, because I understand that we're shaped by what we hear and what we practice, I don't spend a lot of time listening to the media. Mm. Um, I don't do a lot of news. It's not that I'm not informed. I listen to what people are saying and talking about, and then I try to go read deeply. I try to read deeply about both sides of it. Try to see what because whatever is on the news today, whatever's on the news today, didn't happen yesterday, mm -hmm. and there was a long space to it. So I don't listen to those sound bites to try to get me stimulated. Mm -hmm. I find myself being a lot less hopeful um, and very depressed when I deal with media. When you overconsume when those I kinds of media, things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I think even like with um, social media, and, and I think there's a level of omniscience in a sense that I don't think humans were meant to have. And so like I'm okay with not knowing everything. And I think, because I don't think as a human I have a capacity to mm -hmm. hold all these, these kind of God level of understanding of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the internet kind of gives us a false sense of that that I think is very crushing. Mm. So so I just really try to, um, that keep, helps me to have hope, and when I'm, I'm not disciplined in that, I, I am a little bit more despair. Um, I also just really believe in death and resurrection. I think what we bring as Christians, there's a lot of messed up stuff in the world, and there's a lot of death and destruction, uh, but somehow if God is, rec like, through the power of the resurrection, that there's some, something that's happening there that's mysterious and beautiful. And so I really try to believe that. And I'm just trying to only do my little faith, like cultivate the garden that God's given me. And I see hope. I see hope in the young people 
that we've developed. There's like multiple generations of interns and disciples making disciples that are going out in the world. Next year will be 10 years of doing this ministry, this internship ministry, and there'll be over 60 young people who are out in the world doing cultivating stuff. their gardens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they were, and I, I think that's the, and I, I'm hoping, like I'm, I'm about. This would be like almost like 12 years of doing this, and and I had a goal of doing this over 40 years and seeing what God does, you know. And just if I look at just over the last 10 years, it's very, very beautiful and very mm -hmm. hopeful. Mm -hmm. And um, that's great. Excited, yeah. Here at Whitworth, we emphasize that the education that we provide is only partly about preparing a student for a specific job or career. It certainly is those things. But importantly, a Christian education is also about helping students find and live out their various God-given callings mm -hmm. in life, their vocations, as we often say. How do you think you're living out your calling in life? Do you feel like you're being faithful to the ways God is summoning you into the world? That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's what I've... Oh, man, I've, I've had some really great parents, man. I, I won a lottery in that area, and uh, my dad... Uh, I was slow to learn how to read, and so uh, when I was eight years old, my dad uh, said had the idea. Well, if I give him a, a eighth grade level reading Bible, I mean a second grade level reading Bible, then maybe God would he reads the Bible, maybe God would help him to learn how to read. And so he said, get two chapters of Old Testament, two chapters of New Testament, Proverbs or Psalms every day. So literally over the last thirty years, I've read Proverbs every month, you know, and he would have us memorize certain scriptures. And one of the scriptures was, see a man that excels in his work, he'll go before great kings, he will not be known by unknown people, or people of like little means. And so just the, the, the diligence and understanding the fear of God and wisdom, and, and that has like really shaped me in ways that wherever was before me, I just try to do whatever it is, to, as excellent as I know how to do, as faithfully as I know how to do, and not try to be focused on success. I think like what John Wooden says, he says that um, uh, uh, people oftentimes worry about reputation versus character. Reputation is what people think about you. Character is who you are. And so I just like really have tried to like work into that. And as a result, you know, I've tried to play to my strengths, manage my weaknesses. And it's just been amazing for me to see what God's done over the years in this area. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, I mean, just there's a lot of things I'm really not good at. And I just try to do the things that I am good at, you know, being a producer, trying to be a communicator, um, really try to understand complex issues and, and, and give these things, particularly in areas of race and class and culture, and try to uh, communicate this like well in a, a way that people can pastorally but yet effectively engage. I mean, that's just, uh, I mean, that's just kind of uniquely how God shaped me and the narrative God shaped me, and I've tried to be as faithful in it, and that's... That's all I try, try to do, and it's been cool seeing what God's done with it. Well, thanks once again, David Bailey, for being my guest today and for being a friend of Whitworth. And thank you for the important work you're doing to point to the faithful and godly realities of a healthy and reconciled community. For more information about David Bailey and his work, I encourage you to visit arabon.com. That's A-R-R-A-B-O-N.com. And thanks to our listening audience for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. Thanks for listening. Find all of Beck's podcasts and video interviews at whitworth.edu slash beckandcalling or follow Beck on Twitter at Beck Taylor. <laughs>